Hello, once again, welcome back to the Gratuitous Pausing Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Greyhawk. And I'm your co-host, Jackson Eflin. Thank you for joining us for episode 14 of our Bracket on a Boat. Today we'll be discussing 1975's Jaws, as well as 2012's Life of Pi. And the winner of this round will go into our final against the Hunt for Red October. Uh, watch it be Jaws, and have very little time in the finale to actually be spent on a boat, since so little of uh, Hunt for Red October is boat-based. I mean... I know it's a submarine, we've established that, but, you know, we've been people of protest before for that. I would say that submarine is just a subclassification of boat. It is a sea vessel. Subclassification. God damn it. (laughs) (laughs) But we're not talking about submarines right now, we're talking about uh, Jaws and Pie. Yes. It's a Thanksgiving episode. Look, you brought the good content, Uh, I brought the bad jokes. Let's go ahead and start with Jaws. As we like to do in our semifinals, I want to talk about the production side of things. So, Jaws, we have director Steven Spielberg. Probably the most well-known director in history? Yeah, I'll, I'll allow it. I mean, you have the Tarantino's... Hitchcock. Um, Hitchcock, yeah. But Steven Spielberg is so well-known. I mean, he is also, if you include his fil- full filmography, he is the highest grossing director of all time. Impressive. I was including things like he just wrote or produced or whatnot. Or uh, no, I'm just talking about his director stuff. Wow. Yeah, and that filmography includes lots of stuff. Some of the more well known, well beloved things: E.T., the Indiana Jones franchise, all four of them, for better or worse, and the first two Jurassic Park films. All told, he has had 17 Oscar nominations. He has won three of them. Nice for Best Picture and Best Director for Schindler's List in 1994, as well as Best Director for Saving Private Ryan in 1999. Spielberg is kind of amazing for how varied his work is and how he's usually very good at whatever he's working on. Mm -hmm. Or at least, he has a lot of success in many genres. He can definitely swing more Oscar Beatty. He can swing more pulp with Indiana Jones, with Jaws. And there's just a vast variety of stuff that's he's produced and very few things that he's produced have been utter flops i mean even ready player one was at least a small financial success even if it wasn't a critical one Mm -hmm. and i think that the problems of that movie were not spielberg's fault yes there's only so much you can do with a source material like ready player one and they liked it not to anyway Um, and I mean, there's also definitely been some criticism from uh, people he's worked with or from his directorial peers about his later work becoming a lot more commercial, more safe, less interesting. And that is probably some reasonable criticism. I mean, he is the biggest director of all time. It, he's less of a individual and more of a brand at this point. What has he done recently? Let's, I don't know his recent filmography. I think his most recent thing is Ready Player One. He also did... The Post, The Big Fucking Giant, Bridge of Spies, Lincoln. Okay, so yeah. He did Adventures of Tintin. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I think that he's uh, veering more, a little more Oscar baby. Yeah, but I mean, he also has a significant amount of influence in Hollywood. So it's, I think it's a little bit of he's leading more Oscar baby, but also the Oscars are leading more towards propping up people like Spielberg. Mm-hmm. And also a lot of his work has defined has defined the way that films are, so you could make the argument that there's less that he's making things that are commercially viable and more that commercially viable things are being made like him. Yeah. I, I don't want to, like, give him too much credit as a as a person. That's not healthy for film, but... Yeah. Yeah. And also, like, it's interesting that Jaws was only his third professional film. Mm-hmm. He directed Duel in 71 and The Sugarland Express in 74. Mm-hmm. Which, 
I have not really heard of or know much about. So I'm guessing that Jaws is kind of the, where he made it be. I mean, one's an action thriller, one's a like crime film. Mm-hmm. So th- like they definitely fall within that sort of pulpy wheelhouse that he was in at the time. Sure. Moving on to the screenplay, we have Peter Benchley and Carl Gottlieb. Benchley is the author of the original novel, so he gets a screenwriting credit here. I'm not sure how involved he was with the actual adaption to the screen part of things. He also has credits on two other screenplays for two of his other novels, uh, The Deep, which uh, became a film in 77, and The Island, which became a film in 1980. This man likes boats. All of his work is based around like water and the sea. Mm, sure. It's a theme for him. He also has a number of TV writing credits. Some of his books have had been turned into made-for-TV movies. Mm-hmm. He's also written for a few like television shows, miniseries, that sort of thing. Sure. Jaws was his like breakout novel, and between the sales of the book, the film, royalties, and all that, he made enough to work independently as a writer for 10 years. Nice. That's the dream, honestly. Yeah. And you just kind of continued writing for quite a while he actually has a cameo in jaws the film he's the reporter on the beach mm, nice i'm always glad when authors get their cameos in and uh, you mentioned this before how he was not realizing the pushback that sharks will get after jaws mm-hmm. and uh, he became a very strong advocate for ocean conservation especially that for sharks awesome In fact, he was such a strong advocate that um, although he passed away in 2006, in 2015, a new species of lantern shark, Etmopterus benchlii, was named after him. Nice. The common name of the species is the ninja lantern shark because of its black coloration. Mm. So I thought that was really cool. Yeah. Good on him. Then we also have Carl Gottlieb. He was involved in the screenplay for Jaws, Jaws 2, Jaws 3D. Uh, And the only other thing that I was vaguely familiar with of his writing career was Steve Martin comedy, The Jerk. Mm. He was more active in writing for television, a lot of like variety shows, TV specials, that sort of thing. He also has a cameo in the film. He is Meadows, the newspaper editor. I like that both the writers are people in the media in the film. And other significant work, he's been very active with the Writers Guild of America. He was elected to the board of directors in 1983. He was VP from 91 to 94, and then again in 2004, and then Secretary Treasurer in 2011. Wow. Yeah, so he's been very involved with Writers Guild politics, specifically WGA West, and that is important work, and good on him for stepping up and doing it. Yeah. Last person we have to talk about for Jaws is Bill Butler, the cinematographer. As far as his career before Jaws, he was a second unit cinematographer for Deliverance and The Godfather. Besides Jaws, probably what he's best known for is One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, which he was nominated for an Oscar and a BAFTA Award for cinematography. Mm -hmm. Other filmography of note is film adaptation of Grease, Rockies 2, 3, and 4, as well as Child's Play. So a lot of very big movies that are pretty genre-spreading. Yeah. It looks like he kind of didn't capitalize a lot on that. Like, I mean, the biggest thing I can see that he's made in the last 30 years was like Anaconda, of what I recognize. I mean, there's something in here that's like really big that I just don't yeah. recognize. A lot of the people who worked on Jaws, like, they definitely still found work, but they never necessarily got to those heights again. Uh, Bill Butler a little bit, but Spielberg definitely is probably the person who has 
been able to catapult his career the most off of the success of Jaws. Mm-hmm. However, Bill Butler did receive a Lifetime Achievement Award from the American Society of Cinematographers in 03. For the occasion, Spielberg did specifically write a letter thanking him for his contributions to the film on Jaws, specifically calling out his zen-like t- confidence on the set, and that he would have lost his mind without him. That tracks. Jaws often looks very good, and I mean that in a way that like that there's clear intention put into all the different shots and the way they all work mm-hmm. together. Yeah, uh, but... The production of that film was met with lots of problems and complications, not the least of which was the animatronic shark being very temperamental and breaking down quite often. Mm-hmm. You're putting a machine in the water. <laughs> yeah. That Jaws turned out as well as it did with all of those complications says quite a lot about the production crew. Mm-hmm. No, let's talk about the film proper. I think this is one of those films that maybe doesn't doesn't do well on multiple rewatches in a short amount of time. I realize that once we get to the second half of the movie where they get onto the boat and they're hunting shark. Is it Bruce? Is that the name of the shark? Is that I think? I'm pretty sure that's the name of the animatronic shark, but it's uh, not. The shark is never named in the film. I'm thinking of the one from Finding Nemo. Hello. Name's Bruce. Yes, who I believe is named in honor of the animatronic shark. I assume so, yeah. Once they're actually in the boat, on the water, hunting the shark, the movie drags a bit. It's not it's not unwatchable. A lot of the scenes are good, but there's an element of like, we could abridge this. We could trim this down. I would definitely agree with you there. Although one thing I do find interesting about that part of the film is that the tension re- release cycles keep getting shorter and shorter and shorter until the climax. And it, it, I think it does its job really well there, but... I think it maybe starts off a little bit too slow. Mm-hmm. I would definitely not want to cut like character building stuff we get with the drinking scenes. Mm-hmm. I'm not quite sure where to cut chaff that would not adversely affect that tension release cycle is part of the problem. I think you could, after the, the character building drinking scene, um, quite a few scenes of getting the world onto the shark and pulling the shark around and stuff, you could trim down a bit there. I think if you if you essentially cut like one cycle's worth of tension and release from that and a shortened down, you could probably make that work. Mm-hmm. That's fair. Um, I think part of it is that there isn't exactly a good metric by which we, the audience, can glean how well they're doing because the shark doesn't really have like hit points. It's not like <laughs> he has like weapons or or armor they can like whittle down. It's just it, it shark and water. It bad and all that's happening like they're bring through some resource, but we don't really have a sense of how much of that is. So while the tension release is fine, there's not a building attention beyond just this editing and music structure. Yeah. I think part of what is supposed to get us there is the number of barrels that they're able to attach to the shark. Mm-hmm. Trying to go under. Dead again with three barrels on him, not with three again. But the thing about it is, it doesn't seem like the barrels are all that effective. Like, you can attach as many barrels as you want, and this thing is just going to swim wherever it wants. I think a stronger way for that to work might have been if they failed to get the barrel on at least once or twice, and then it was like, oh, this is our last barrel. Oh, now it's on, and now it's kind of, like, tighter. Yeah, or if we had a scene where they were able to, like harpoon it and they lost the harpoon but it's like stuck in there we know it like okay it's been hit yeah something like that mm-hmm. and admittedly it is very difficult to create spatial tension when you're just a boat on flat open water mm-hmm. we've established this we talked about this with master commander a bit uh, and they do try to switch things up a little bit with the shark cage scene mm-hmm. i do think that's one of the scenes of the film that's probably the most messily shot and i think it's just 
due to the nature of trying to film underwater. Mm-hmm. Film tense underwater scenes when you have all these moving parts and you can only show so much of the shark. I get it. Yeah. It doesn't bother me too much. There's a yeah. very good jump stare in there. Yeah. There's also definitely some, I'm not sure if it's stock footage or shark B-roll that they shot themselves, but um, <laughs> there's definitely a real shark there, not just the animatronic one. Yeah. And part of the trouble here is that the shark seems very invulnerable. Like, like they keep hitting it with stuff and nothing seems to work, but there's not quite enough of a, like, turning to the audience and saying, nothing seems to be working that you might have in, like, other stuff where you have a, like, ambiguously supernatural monster. Mm-hmm. And I think we could have used maybe a little bit more of that just to let us know that they should be succeeding but they're not, as opposed to, like, they're flailing at this thing. Yeah. But also, this is from having seen it a few times now, kind of knowing what's coming. I think it, the first time I watched it, it around July, it was fine. Yeah. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. There's also, like, really fun stuff you don't notice the first time as much, like how scared Brody is through this whole thing. Mm-hmm. When the shark first shows up, not long before the. Uh, You're going to need a bigger boat. He just stands up and walks backwards and doesn't tell anybody else that it's there at first, which is great. Yeah. The film does such a good job of portraying Brody's anxiety and fear without any dialogue necessarily alluding to it. He hates the water. He hates boats. He doesn't want to be there. Mm-hmm. And he's there because it's his job to take care of this. Mm-hmm. Another great bit. During that like great character building scene at night, Hooper and Quinn have finished off their plates where he, as he has barely touched his. It's a really small thing. They don't focus on it at all. Like, that's really good. Mm-hmm. Also in that scene, they're sh- comparing scars and he, like, pulls up his shirt to look at something. We see that he's got, like, this wound um, on his abdomen and doesn't elaborate on it. It's really cool. Mm-hmm. I love that there is clearly a full, rich tapestry of story for Brody that happened before this movie and we don't really find out what it is and we'll have to fill it in. Mm-hmm. It's really cool. Maybe it's in the book. I don't know. From what I was reading about the book, probably not. The book's characters are a little bit more stiff. Mm. In fact, Spielberg uh, once commented that he hated most of the characters in the book so much that he wanted the shark to win. Ah, <laughs> uh, so he is cut out for making slasher movies. <laughs> but he managed to fix that here. Like, all these characters are very compelling. Yeah. Even though I really don't like Quint, I've realized. Like, he's fun, he's interesting, but his misogyny kind of, like, grates on me over time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and one of the ways they were able to add more depth to Quint is his whole like speech about the Indianapolis, mm-hmm. which is like, such an iconic scene. I couldn't imagine the movie without it, but that was created whole cloth for the film mm, nice. to give Quint some motivation about why he is the way that he is. Mm-hmm. I think you really do need that with Quint specifically, because he's so out there. Having something to kind of ground him in what pushed him out there is helpful. Yes, Another thing about Quentin that I think is interesting is because of the Ahab thing, there's going to be some parallels between him and the shark. And a bit that I like is when he describes the shark as being... I don't know, Chief. I don't know. He's very smart, very dumb. Which I think you can probably say of Quint as well. Mm -hmm. It's unclear if he's frighteningly competent from all his years of experience or if he's just so mad that he makes you think that he is. Mm -hmm. Whether he's actually good at this or if he's just kind of the person who's done this the most is an interesting question. Yeah, whether that confidence in his ability is well-deserved or not. Mm-hmm. I mean, we see a lot of shark bones in his shack, but mm. but you can buy those on Amazon. <laughs> not at the time, but yes. <laughs> I do want to talk about, I think, probably one of my favorite scenes in the film is when Hooper is doing the autopsy. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he has his little tape recorder and is taking notes and the barely restrained rage and disgust over 
them attempting to cover up this shark attack is fantastic. Mm-hmm. Well, this is not a boat accident. It wasn't any propeller. It wasn't any coral reef. And it wasn't Jack the Ripper. It was a shark. The same way that the Indianapolis is a great way to get into the mind of Quint, I think that scene is a great way to get into the mind of Hooper and who he is as a person. He is all about seeking truth and the fact that they are covering this up and putting people at risk. It's so maddening to him. Mm -hmm. In the book, Hooper has an affair with Brody's wife. That's a thing, right? I have no idea. Okay. I've not read the book. Oh, okay. There's, I think... I had not read any inklings of that, but I wouldn't necessarily be surprised. I feel like I either read that somewhere or heard it somewhere. I don't know. But obviously, that's not a thing in the movie because Brody's wife isn't really much of a thing in the movie. But making Hooper more likable in that, in his kind of righteous fury way, I think is a better way to make him a compelling character. Mm -hmm. I think I don't need like that weird interpersonal drama that where, like, Brody and Hooper have this, like, I don't know, cucks on a boat vibe. <laughs> That's a verb that I said. <laughs> um, but also I realized that part of the reason I like this movie so much is that it, it has that, like, Spock, Kirk, and Bones dynamic from Star Trek. You're not wrong. Yeah. As someone who has a lot of affection for the original Star Trek series, I'm like, yeah, it's good. This is what I'm like. Give me more of this. Mm-hmm. I said that Chief Brody's wife isn't really much of a character, and that's true, but I think when she is there, she has a very strong presence, which I think is good. Like, she yeah. does a good job of what, what the morsels she has. Yeah. It makes sense that she's not as much of a character, because Brody is very specifically very distant from his home life because he's dealing with the shark attack and this new job and trying to acclimate, and so he's just off on his own dealing with his own shit and his wife and kids are out of his mind a lot and like we talked about that great line last time uh when hooper comes to visit your husband's home yes i'd really uh, like to talk to him uh yes so would i there's a bit where brody uh, tells his wife that she should take her son home and she goes like to new york that's a very loaded line she has a lot of like just one sentence to convey an entire character yeah once. Also, there's that weird bit where Quint just, like, hangs up on her without telling Brody that she's on the, on the radio, which, I mean, I get it. Like, there's a shark happening, but... Yeah, that's... I think that's one of Quint's, like, most Ahab moments. Like, you could talk to your husband later. Mm-hmm. Let the men do the shark thing. hmm Like I said, I picked up a lot more on Quint's toxic masculinity in this one. Yeah, like, there's also just some decisions that he makes that don't make lots of sense unless you specifically read it as him just going mad and is solely focused on killing the shark no matter what happens to him afterwards Mm -hmm. which goes not well for him honestly no it never goes well for the ahab analog no well i guess it goes okay for picard in for in first contact world because someone tells him he's the ahab analog he's like hey you're right this is not gonna go well for me you're right that is how the book ended and uh (laughs) His interlocutor says, actually, I never read it. Sorry, I can't think about how good First Contact is. Mm-hmm. I feel like usually we have more to, like, really dig into with uh, by the third round, but, like, there's just so much in Jaws to like. It's only, like, little bits that are just really fun. Mm-hmm. Even though we might be like, ah, look at that bad shark design. It's, it's fine. I mean, it's shark, the shark holds up just fine, honestly. Yeah, like, the, the shark holds up surprisingly well. Mm-hmm. This film is almost 50 years old. Mm-hmm. I mean, it doesn't hold up quite as well as, like, the effects from Life of Pi, but... Yeah, but Life of Pi is 
eight years old. Right. One thing that I do want to talk about, and I think it's an interesting dichotomy between the two films, is how they deal with like violence and gore. Mm-hmm. Both of these films are about large predators at sea. Both of these films distinctly have scenes that are portraying the violence that predators are capable of, but the ways they portray it is very different. Life of Pi obfuscates the blood and gore much more than Jaws does. Mm -hmm. And the way Jaws does it is a way to build tension. And as the film goes on, the violence and the gore become much more significant, much more visceral. Mm -hmm. Whereas that never really happens in Life of Pi. It's not something that they want to draw your attention towards. They want to make a point like this creature is violent and capable of causing harm, but they don't necessarily want to traumatize you with it. Right. Even when the hyena kills uh, or Julius, we kind of don't quite see what Pi is seeing when he's looking down at the body. It's like the, the wound is maybe two inches off screen. Yeah. Then we get Richard Parker killing the hyena. We have Richard Parker and the goat earlier on in the film where we specifically cut away from. Mm-hmm. Even though that's a very traumatic moment for Pi. Yeah. Honestly, I think the most we see is Richard Parker just scarfing down that rat. Which, I mean, even then, it's still pretty bloodless. It's just like... I think that's a thing that makes both these films compelling is that they are, in a lot of ways... They're creature features, functionally, but yeah. in very different ways. And yes. a fun thing about creature features is that while human or other sentient antagonists can think tactically, animals broadly can't. So they will act with whatever they're feeling at the moment, which makes them harder to predict, but also a little easier to survive because they're not... Broadly, they don't have a sense of vengeance, except maybe the shark does. It is a little bit, like, narrow-minded, but, you know. I think... Oh really interesting way to think about the dichotomy is Jaws is very concerned with the physical, whereas Life of Pi is much more concerned with the philosophical. Mm, yeah. So, Life of Pi, tell me everything. So, we've got so we've got director, Ang Lee. Pretty successful director. Not as s- successful as Spielberg, but very few people are. <laughs> well, he's not as successful as Spielberg. I think that he is, from what I've seen, he is equally as talented. Mm-hmm. So... So there. Films that you may be familiar with. He directed a film adaptation of Sense and Sensibility in 1995. Probably the film that he's most known for is Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. Mm -hmm. Which I have not managed to get onto a bracket yet, but give me time. (laughs) He also directed Brokeback Mountain. I feel that we have not gotten onto the bracket yet, and I doubt we will. (laughs) He has had eight Oscar nominations and three wins, so technically the same number as Spielberg. Mm -hmm. He had a win for Best Foreign Language Film for Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon in 2000, and Best Director for Brokeback Mountain in 05, and Best Director for Life of Pi in 2012. Uh, Patrick H. Williams said that Ang Lee really likes quiet and personal stories about like, about manners and repressed emotions, which we've seen in Sensibility, Crouching Tiger, and honestly, Life of Pi. Mm-hmm. Brokeback Mountain. Yeah. <laughs> like, there's a theme. Mm-hmm. I mean, Gemini Man? Yeah. Why? Yeah, that's another interesting thing about Ang Lee. He's very interested in pushing the boundaries of visual effects. Like with Gemini Man, it was frames per second and 4K and things like that. Did that with Life of Pi. Attempted to do that with his Hulk adaptation. 
And honestly, while I don't think that worked, I'm glad he tried it. It's mm. kind of that, like, so no one else has to thing. Yeah. Could probably say the same for uh, Billy Lynn's halftime walk. It is visually stunning in a way that is similar to Life of Pi. Just the it was not as well received because it the characters weren't as compelling, I guess. Mm, sure. Yeah. I remember the trailers and looking at them like, that looks really pretty, but I'm not sure what it's about or if I should care. Mm. I do like how varied a lot of his work is. I mean, like, Hulk is a you know comic book adaption. You have adaptions of, of Jane Austen and then of, of Wuxian novels. He's He seems to, like, get interested in a thing and then move on to the next thing, which is cool. Yeah. That is a thing that I noted about the production team for Life of Pi. All the major players are well known for their works in adapting typically literature, but sometimes a few other things. Mm. Like, we have David Maggie, films he's worked on. Finding Neverland, Mary Poppins Returns, and the upcoming Little Mermaid film, as well as Children of Blood and Bone. I'm very excited about both of those. Yes, which is exactly why I decided to bring them up. (laughs) (laughs) And he's received two Oscar nominations, Best Adapted Screenplay for Finding Neverland and for Life of Pi. Should also probably talk about the author of the work that this is adapted from, the novel Life of Pi, Yann Martell, Life of Pi... In a similar way to Benchley was kind of a breakout novel for him, uh, released in 2001. A thing that we've talked about in the past is how very distinct the three-act structure is in Life of Pi, and that's probably down to the fact that the book is very specifically split into three specific parts. Ah, uh, that helps. Yes. Unlike um, Jaws, which is a little bit... I could not easily tell you where the act breaks are, but also it might not follow the three-act structure. Mm-hmm. So, tracks. One interesting thing I did uh, pick up looking into the book is that there is some significance to the name Richard Parker. Hmm. It has this odd way of becoming associated with shipwrecks and cannibalism. Hmm. So the name Richard Parker comes up in the narrative of Arthur Gordon Pym of Nantucket by Poe from 1838, which involves shipwrecks and cannibalism. Of course. Uh, a legal ca- case, S.V. Dudley and Stevens from 1884, involving cannibalism on a lifeboat, specifically the cannibalism of a cabin boy named Richard Parker. Wow. And there is also someone by the name of Richard Parker associated with the sinking of the Francis Strait in 1846, as described by Jack London. Huh. So, it's a thing, and thus that's why the tiger is named Richard Parker. That makes sense. I did actually know a little bit about this, because... Peter Parker's father is also named Richard Parker. Oh, no. (laughs) And so they sometimes play around with this, too. It's like a very weird coincidence sort of thing. How do you play around with that? I cannot think of anything less likely to have shipwreck and cannibalism than our friend the neighborhood Spider-Man. Oh, well, like, this is involving Richard Parker, so this is his days as a super spy before Peter became Spider-Man. Because you have to have, like, weird backstory for dead fathers of comic book characters. Man, I actively reject that notion. The idea that Spider-Man comes from anything other than just, like, some guy diminishes the character. Exactly. Like, that's why, like, I have never given a shit about Richard Parker. Like, for all intents and purposes, Spider-Man's dad is Uncle Ben. He was pulled from the thigh of Zeus and given to to a man named (laughs) Uncle Ben. His first name is Uncle's last name is Ben. Well, before before we get into the actual film, we still have to talk about the cinematographer, Claudio Miranda. Films that he's worked on, The Curious Case of Benjamin Button, Tron Legacy, and the upcoming Top Gun, Maverick. Oh, I keep forgetting that we're doing more Top Gun things. So do I. <laughs> <laughs> 
He also has a Oscar nom for Best Cinematography for Benjamin Button, and he is also won an Oscar for the Cinematography in Life of Pi. Sure. Yeah. Which I, makes total sense. Yeah, we talked about this. Yeah. Interesting things uh, from his career. Benjamin Button was the first film that was entirely filmed in digital that was nominated for Best Cinematography. Mm-hmm. More interesting and more weird, he's involved in an experimental film project called 100 Years, written by and starring John Malkovich. Its release date is November 18th, 2115. What is going on with that? <laughs> So, I looked into this a little bit, and this is in collaboration with a cognac distiller, uh, Louis Thirteenth. And the way they create their cognac is they age it for 100 years before the bottle becomes available for purchase. And so that is why there is this 100-year wait between the production of the film and the releasing of it. I honestly think it's mostly a publicity stunt for this cognac company. I, I vaguely remember back in like 2015 and 2016 hearing about this. It just doesn't go anywhere because no one's going to see the film for 100 years. But back in 2017, Pharrell Williams recorded a song, also titled 100 Years, that is set to be released in 2117. Huh. So I'm... Guessing that this is mostly this cognac company tossing money at people for these publicity stunt sort of things under the guise of, like, experimental art. Sure. I do think that is a cool concept. I'm, I'm sad that it's more of a commercial publicity thing and not just we're going to make art for art's sake. Yeah. I can understand delaying the release of a film. 100 Years seems incredibly long to wait to do that because it's very unlikely that anyone who is going to have context from the time is going to be alive to see it right it will in theory be a curiosity Mm -hmm. in in a century but no one who's making it will like i guess see the benefit of that curiosity so in that way it is good as art for for art's sake because it's kind of it's planting seeds in the garden that you're never gonna see grow which is interesting and weird Mm mm-hmm yeah, like, I'm not completely opposed to the idea, but it does seem a little pointless, and it being so closely associated with this company that has no real interest in the arts and is mostly there to sell expensive cognac, it cheapens the whole thing. <laughs> yeah, you're not wrong. I think, broadly speaking, I am intrigued by the idea of, like, filming a thing and then not releasing it for... Like, a long time. I think 100 years is a little bit long, but, like, yeah. we're seeing the same thing with New Mutants. We're not going to be released until 50 years after it was created. And... <laughs> oh. <laughs> it's funny because it's true. I feel so fucking bad for the people who worked on that film. <laughs> but I think that, like, I, as a consumer of film, would actually be very interesting, interested to see a film that had been, like, maturing in a barrel for 100 years. Like, if it was filmed back in, I guess, 1920. That sounds really cool. I'd be intrigued to at least see what that's like, even though I assume it would not be that good of a movie. Here's the thing, though. Like, you can already go and look at films made in 1920, and most people are completely unaware of them because most people don't watch films that are that old. Mm -hmm. Or they do as, like, I'm intrigued by the past kind of thing. Like, we would, but not, like, you know, Joe Nobody. Yeah. I mean, like, we're getting to the point where... People aren't that familiar with films from the 50s and 60s either. I'm one of them. Mm-hmm. Like, most of my film knowledge comes from the 70s and later, and even 
anything before about 1980 i don't know much about mm-hmm. and a lot of what has lasted are like the giant things like a few hitchcocks wizard of oz yeah what came out in 1920 i'm just curious i know we're this is a rabbit hole but whatever um i think the film metropolis came out around then which is pretty spicy i'll allow Cameron Ka- uh, dr caligari a mask of zorro last of the mohicans just pals which i assume is much more homoerotic than uh they realized it was uh, Louis Gallum's Six. Apart from kind of Caligari, which I only know about because I'm into like history of film and also horror, there's not a lot that really stands out here. Yeah, and I mean, in about ten years, as far as like few films from a hundred years ago get our concern, we're gonna start getting into the Universal Monsters era mm-hmm. and stuff like that. And we just recently watched those last year. Mm-hmm. And I think if. If you're like, wow, look, at, we found this lost picture from 1920, that would be kind of cool and interesting. Mm. Because there's that, that hype of, like, buried treasure, but this is probably just going to, like, go in a vault somewhere. Will yeah. we even be able to play DVDs at that point? How will it be stored? Have they committed to, like, I don't know, celluloid, just be on the safe side? Yeah. I also, like, wonder what's going to happen if this cognac company uh, eventually goes out of business. <laughs> Nothing good for 100 years. <laughs> but we've gotten wildly off topic. Let's go ahead and bring this back to Life of Pi. All right. I have two things that I have emotions about, but not necessarily thoughts about. Do you want to jump into uh, Lotus Flowers or Goodbyes? Hmm. Let's start with Lotus. So we talked before about how Pi's romance with a character not even mentioned in the Wikipedia summary of this movie is not very important, but it's probably a bigger thing in the book. Mm. One of the first interactions, he sees her while she's dancing, and he's trying to figure out what the dance she's doing meant. I might be saying this wrong. Forgive me. As far as I know, these are like these are like mudras. They're like expressive Hindu dance things. And he's trying to f- interpret what she's saying. And he's like, but at the very end, you did this. None of the other dancers did that. What did you mean? The god of love is hiding in the forest? No, that also means a lotus flower. Lotus flower is hiding in the forest. Why would a lotus flower hide in the forest? And so I got kind of off on a tangent about what lotus flower means in terms of. A symbolism and lots. Yeah, like <laughs> <laughs> I tried. God, but you couldn't have picked a worse flower to try and do this with. I really could not have. Like maybe the rose, but even then, even then, we know what roses symbolize. They symbolize throwing things in the trash. Roses are terrible flowers. <laughs> Fuck the roses. Don't. They're thorny. <laughs> anyway, don't kink shame me, but. That actually kind of works for this film, and also, parallel to the Ahab thing, a big part of why Moby Dick has endured is because people like to try to figure out what it means, and it can mean many things depending on who you are, mm-hmm. in the same way that Lotus Flower could mean a lot of different things depending on how you're reading it, who you are, what your relationship is with it, and we don't really get an answer in this film, which tracks because this film likes to present questions and not really force an answer upon us. Yes. So I think it actually works really well, and also, my read on it, feel free to have a different one, and feel free to like, come in here with a cultural knowledge, like, oh, actually, it's obviously this thing. Is that, because a lot of what I was seeing was that the Lotus was related to divinity and like the realization of, of the divine within oneself, that mm. it was about this dance that Pi was witnessing was foreshadowing his own journey of like having to go into the, the metaphorical forest to like find the divine within himself. Mm-hmm. Which, cool, that work. I think a lot of the way that the film engages with religion and divinity is tied up in symbolism and subtext. There's not a whole lot of directness in that regard 
And I think it's relatively easy to miss. Uh, I know that we kind of talked about that last time, that we wish it was a little bit more direct in talking about and discussing divinity, religiosity, spirituality. Mm-hmm. And I've definitely seen that leveled as a criticism of the film in other places. I don't think it's necessarily a criticism. I think that's just more of a preference because... I can tell the film is trying to do more, but I know a lot of people are not going to be looking closely enough to realize that. Mm -hmm. If a film requires you to do outside homework to fully appreciate it, is that a bad thing? We're going to decide that big question here and now. I mean, as with a lot of things, I think it depends. I mean, we knocked Pirates of the Caribbean 2 for that exact reason because it wanted us to do the homework of going to C3. That's true. I think a lot of it has to do with the reasons for doing so. Like, Life of Pi wants you to do outside homework, so you come to your own conclusions and answer the questions that the film poses, whereas the homework Pirates 2 wants you to do is to buy a ticket to Pirates 3. (laughs) That's fair. Uh, So, you know, I'll allow that. In this case, it is probably a good thing that ties into the way the film is supposed to work and the journey that Pi is going through. Yeah. I think that pointing the audience at a direction outside the film is reasonable in certain circumstances. It definitely falls apart when there is a cost of admission. <laughs> mm-hmm. Beyond like using a Google or going to a bookstore. Yeah. Or, you know, meeting people who have different religious beliefs than you and just <laughs> developing friendships that way. Yeah. One thing I do want to talk about is the way that Richard Parker is portrayed in the film. Mm-hmm. Because I think it's... Very different from how most people would expect a tiger who is such a significant character in the film to act. Richard Parker, there's no real attempts to personify him. He's a tiger. Mm -hmm. When he is hungry, he is going to attack the thing that he sees around that looks like food. Mm -hmm. If this were, I don't know, like a Disney film, you can imagine that the way Richard Parker would be portrayed would be a lot more akin to something like the animals from the Jungle Book. Oh, yeah. This film would suffer greatly if he had, like, an internal monologue. Although I can imagine a version of the story that is narrated by Richard Parker that could be really interesting, I think it'd be a very different movie. Yeah. And, like, not even necessarily, like, an internal dialogue ruining it, but just, like, having the tiger be more warm, more friendly, Mm. I don't think it would work as it does here. There's significance to... Pi and Richard Parker having this huge communication barrier and having to, over the course of hundreds of days, learn to coexist with each other. Mm-hmm. And I also think that by attempting to personify this tiger, that it takes away from the reading of Richard Parker as this metaphor for the trauma of what Pi has been through and what he had to do in order to survive. Yeah. I will also say they still give opportunities to create empathy for Richard Parker in his experience of this whole thing. Mm-hmm. Like, there's a bit towards the beginning where he's trying to scramble up to eat pie to, like, food, but his claws are stuck in the canvas and he doesn't understand because he's a cat. He doesn't get what this thing is. And they do a great job of conveying that confusion and fear amidst this other emotion that yeah. distracts him from that. Which, yeah. I mean, I've also seen cats being very confused by technology. It's yeah. fun. But the way they attempt to get the audience to feel empathy for Richard Parker is not the same way that you would feel empathy for a human. Oh, absolutely not, yeah. which I think is really good. Like, they yeah. they make you feel for him on his terms, not ours. Exactly. I've seen some criticism from, like, animal rights activists that a lot of times the way we create empathy for friendly monsters and things, especially dragons, is to make them like a cat or a dog. Mm-hmm. And Richard Parker is less like a house cat than, say, Pete from Peace Dragon or... 
Toothless from uh, How to Train a Dragon. Mm-hmm. Even though I can still see the house cat in there. Well, no. House cats are small tigers. Different. <laughs> so you had another um, have emotions but not necessarily thoughts thing. What was that? This is something a little more... I don't know what to do with it, but like we open the film kind of with Pi mentioning that he remembers his last day with his love interest, but he doesn't remember saying goodbye to her. And then we kind of close it with Pi having some emotions about Richard Parker not turning to say goodbye. I feel like there's something there, but I'm not quite sure what. Like, not sure. I get you. I do think there's something a little significant in those bookends. Mm-hmm. It could be that that is maybe some unconscious guilt that he has for maybe he wasn't able to say goodbye and he feels bad about it and Richard Parker is there to accentuate that. But yeah, I think that's interesting, but I'm not sure how much conclusion we can draw from it. I think if anything, it's just a further inscribing of Pi's character and that he really likes for there to be a clear significance to things Mm -hmm. and yet he constantly seeks out things that confuse him. Mm Mm-hmm. He wants the clear bookend of saying goodbye to India. He wants the clear goodbye of Richard Parker's relationship with him ending all, all that jazz. And he doesn't have those things. And that's just kind of part of Pi's life is his ongoing not having of that clear, comprehensible experience to get, to tell him what it all means. Yeah, I mean, the, the film itself doesn't really have a clear conclusion. It gives us two stories, none of which explain all of our questions and both of which could be theoretically possible. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. One last thing I want to talk about with Life of Pi. Rewatching it, I'm realizing that the subject of the camera is not just the boat and its passengers. The subject of the camera is the boat, the people in it, the sea, and the sky. Everything is posed and framed in such a way that the ocean and the sky are not just a backdrop. Mm -hmm. They are actors in the scene. Right. And I really appreciate that. And I think that's one of the reasons that Life of Pi is so beautiful is because there's a lot of thought and effort put into making those scenes look that way. There's not, oh, well, the ocean looks like this because it's the ocean. It's like, no, the ocean looks like this because of how things are going in the scene and what sort of emotions we want to convey. Mm Mm-hmm. It's about Pi's relationship with, with Richard Parker, but also with, you know, the world he's living in. So it makes sense. Like, yeah. he's, he's very immersed in this thing. Yeah. And doing so gives the film a more idiosyncratic look, which is important for establishing it as a special thing. Mm-hmm. Because this story is a spiritual journey, it needs to take us as, as far out of the realm of the normal as it can. So having a unusual look helps that a lot. Yes. I think I'm ready to move into our end segment. How about you? Yeah, for sure. All right. So, Ship of Theseus Award. I mean, I guess it's got to go to... The life, well, no, because the ship for Life of Pi is uh, the, the Simsum. The Simsum, yeah. So, hmm. Yeah, so we have the Simsum, which is the freighter that sinks, and there's the Orca. Neither of which make it through the film. No. We distinctly know why the Orca sank. We have no idea for the Simsum. God wanted to send a tiny boy into the ocean. <laughs> uh, the Simsum is also much bigger, and there's a investigation into why it sank. I will say that the Simpsons seems to like sink pretty coherently as a unit apart from whatever yeah. stopped working, whereas yeah. we established that the Orca gets scattered. I think there's also, the Orca is a much more important ship in the narrative of Jaws than the Simpsons is in Life of Pi. Yeah, I mean, the Simpsons' life raft matters, but the boat is just there. It, honestly, it could have not sank and just gone off course or whatever and been fine. Yeah. 
I'm not sure how you get several animals and a boy into a life raft without the ship sinking, but whatever. Yeah. Yeah, so there's an argument to be made for the the lifeboat being more significant in the life of Pi, and if that were the case, then that probably gets the ship of Theseus award. But if we're talking about the Simsum and the Orca, I'm not quite sure who gets the award between those two. I say that because the Simsum has uh, a subboat, a life raft, that yeah. makes it all the way through the film, there is more functional part of the Simsum than there are functional part of the Orca. <laughs> That's very true. In Jaws, they swim back to shore, kicking on some debris and driftwood from the orca. Mm-hmm. I think it's specifically some of the barrels they were using to snag the shark. Yeah. I'm guessing the award will go to Life of Pi. Yeah, I'll allow it. But hard question here, what's the better film of the two? Going into this recording, I had one answer, and I think coming out of it, I have a different one. Really? What was your opening answer? I was going to vote for Jaws going into this, but I think I want to vote for Life of Pi now. Yeah, that's kind of where I wound up. I think Jaws is very good, but there are so many little things that make it not quite as rewatchable, whereas Life of Pi keeps drawing me in more. In certain respects, the ubiquitousness of Jaws played a role in that for me. I've seen Jaws many times, and it's a wonderful film, but... Life of Pi has this mystery to it that I want to keep engaging with. Yeah. Whereas I think the less we engage with the mystery of Jaws, the better, as we've seen from from the Jaws sequels. Yeah. Life of Pi is moving into our final against The Hunt for Red October. I would not have called that at the beginning of this bracket. No, although I'm not entirely surprised. They're all very strong films. Honestly, a lot of people are thinking it's going to be Titanic versus Jaws. Yes. Yeah, we've got one more episode of the bracket proper, and then we have a few lifeboat episodes coming your way. Yeah. Uh, we hope you join them for us. If you want to make sure you're catching up with that, that's on Facebook, Twitter, and wherever you catch your pods. Once again, this has been the Gratuitous Positive Podcast. Thanks for tuning in.